The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. After two months of litigation, she issues the, the SEPA protective order that the government sought two months earlier. And that was all. There was no explanation of why is she ruling against Trump. And then a couple weeks later, in an unrelated ruling on something else, in a footnote, there's an oblique reference that you can gather, oh, she ruled against him on this gift. It's it's very odd. And now she's got, I just listed all these motions. There's no getting around it. One of them is presidential immunity. She's got to rule against him on the record. And I don't know if she can do it. And so this will be an important thing to see. And the presidential immunity thing, she's not only got to rule against him, but she's really got to say this is frivolous because otherwise there's a danger of the automatic stay coming into effect. So uh, we're about to see whether she can rule against him on the record in a normal way. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 24th, 2024. It's another episode of Trump's Trials and Tribulations, recorded on February 22nd in front of a live audience on YouTube and Zoom. I sat down with Lawfare Senior Editor Roger Parloff, Lawfare Legal Fellow and Courts Correspondent Anna Bauer, and Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes to talk about the continued drama in Fulton County and what has happened since the blockbuster hearings there last week. We also checked in on the Southern District of Florida to see what Judge Cannon is up to and discuss what we're waiting on from the Supreme Court in D.C. And, of course, we took audience questions from Lawfare Material supporters on Zoom. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 24th. Trump's Trials and Tribulations. Delays in Florida and D.C. So... I think it's fair to say that this has been a little bit of a slower news week, perhaps contrary to what we have expected. Um, Let's start off with what hasn't happened so far, the the dog that, that hasn't barked. Roger, let me go to you first. The Supreme Court has been quiet. What haven't we heard from them on? Uh, We haven't heard if they're going to grant or deny the stay on the matter of the president, whether Trump has presidential immunity, it's taking, that's not a very difficult decision to say yes or no, as, as far as a stay goes, you don't need to write a decision. So a lot of people are speculating that perhaps they've decided to deny the stay and somebody is writing a dissent because that's about the only thing that we can think of that would be slowing it down. But that's speculation. As things stand, by my arithmetic, if the stay were denied and uh, that would end the automatic uh, 
stay now in effect, trial could start or jury selection could start May 20th at the earliest. So that's about where things stand with the United States versus Trump uh, D.C. case. Ben, what's what are your thoughts on where we stand with the court on this? I feel like we were all kind of burned by expecting a really quick turnaround from the D.C. circuit. And now I've given up on making predictions. But would you have expected that the court would have weighed in by now? So I wasn't sure. But I uh, but uh, before I answer that, I actually have a question for Roger. Why why are we assuming that it is that the court is denying the stay and that there's a dissent rather than that the court is granting a stay and there is a dissent? Just because if there, I haven't seen many denials, I mean, dissents from a grant. I've seen a lot of dissents from a denial. And uh, it's sort of catty. You know, you're going to be deciding the case and to say, gee, uh, we shouldn't even be deciding this. I mean, you'll have time to to say your thoughts later when the actual decision comes out. I, I, I just haven't seen that. I see. So here are my thoughts. Um, I think people were, uh, including me, by the way, were hasty in assuming that the D.C. Circuit would be lickety split. And at every stage, we've kind of thought we assumed, like we we thought our predictive powers were a little bit better than they were about where this was going and at what pace. Um, the Supreme Court's original denial of the motion for cert before judgment, uh, which I think was came as a surprise to a lot of people, including me, and. As a result, I when the when this went to the Supreme Court, I was kind of like, well, I've kind of been wrong about every other procedural element of this. Uh, so maybe I'm not gonna have a lot of expectations as to speed of action or what those actions are gonna be. And so I have not, even to myself, kind of made an internal prediction either about what the Supreme Court is going to do or how fast they're going to do it, Um, because they actually do seem to be uh, not consulting me or my sense of propriety in, in how they handle this. That said, I'm not particularly surprised that, you know, everybody expected it to happen super fast and once again, everybody kind of didn't correctly anticipate the predilections of a group of nine people who nobody is consulting. And so I'm 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 not surprised, but I'm also not saying I told you so because I didn't. Fair enough. Um, and I, I will note it's also seemingly been another week in which we have not heard from the court on the 14th Amendment case regarding Trump's disqualification, which, Roger, I know you and I, at least perhaps alone, were <laughs> expecting that the court might try to get to um, by the end of the month, just so it's out of the way before uh, the Super Tuesday primaries in, in early March. Do you have any thoughts on the timeline there? Well, I think it's still early. Um, and they didn't, to me, they didn't seem they were all going off in different directions. So I, I think there might be a lot of decisions. And uh, and if there aren't, it'll take a while to get on the same page. But um, I, I, they were, 
I mean, the goal of, uh, you know, uh, there is uh, uh, Super Tuesday is March 5th. And uh, at, uh, I think Col- the Colorado Republican Party, state Republican Party had specifically begged them to get it done before then. And they seem to be on a schedule that was set with that in mind. So I still think that's uh, what they're aiming at. Anything else we should touch on from the, the Supreme Court before we move move south? Weirdly enough, we, we might get a ruling from an Illinois Superior Court, uh, even while we're waiting to hear from the Supreme Court on a Section 3 challenge there. That judge has gone forward uh, with a hearing. An appeals court in Illinois denied a, a stay request from uh, Trump, obviously, based on the pending Supreme Court matter. So we might hear one more, uh, the result in one more state. And do do you have any sense of why it is that, that that court is moving forward with this case? It seems kind of odd, particularly because I know other state courts have kind of put things on ice while waiting for the Supreme Court to weigh in. I think it, it is kind of odd. I, I don't know what it means. And it's not a readily available you know, a docket or uh, I, I haven't been able to follow closely, but um, you're right. I mean, most most of pe- most people have, you know, they'd rather not dis- decide something uh, that they're just, it, just as a matter of laziness. You know, it's all going to become moot in a, in a in a couple of weeks. Right. It's it's doing homework that you don't actually have to turn <laughs> right. in. Um, so let's move move south first, Anna. Um, Let's just go in in order as we move south from uh, from D.C. Uh, It's been a busy week in in Fulton County. Um, You and Ben had quite the write up of what you described as a hearing full of sex and lies in Fulton County. Um, So tell me what on earth went on um, and what has happened in the the intervening days since the what I think it's fair to say is uh, Fonnie Willis's somewhat explosive testimony. Right. So we did talk a little bit last week when we had uh, our special episode of Trump trials on Friday after or towards the end of the two day evidentiary hearing on whether Fonnie Willis ought to be disqualified from prosecuting Trump and others. Uh, And Ben and I also just recorded a podcast yesterday with Andrew Fleischman, who is a defense attorney from Georgia, who's been following this case closely. Uh, And so we talk more in depth about, you know, what happened during that hearing and what our take on it uh, was. But where we are right now is that we've had this two day evidentiary hearing in Ben and I's the the piece that Ben and I wrote, uh, we take the view that looking at the known evidence and what came out during that hearing, we do not think that there's a basis right now to disqualify Fonnie Willis uh, based on what occurred in that hearing. But as we wrote in that piece, uh, you know, there's a lot that could depend on how Judge McAfee makes credibility determinations based on this in-camera meeting that he was scheduled to have with Terrence Bradley. If folks recall, Terrence Bradley is the former law partner and former divorce attorney who represented Nathan Wade. Uh, During that hearing last week, one of the kind of uh, more unclear elements 
or kind of aspects of the evidence was what exactly does Terrence Bradley know? Uh, he uh, invoked privilege a number of times that related to this core issue of the timing of the relationship. Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade testified that the relationship did not begin until 2022, whereas the defense have argued that the relationship began earlier than that, that it began in, in fact, around 2019. Uh, and they had one witness to in kind of conclusory and, and vague fashion did say that the relationship, you know, she believed the relationship started in 2019. So there was this, uh, you know, one witness versus what Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis said about the timing of the relationship. And if it turns out that the state has not been forthcoming and and uh, in fact misrepresented the timing of that relationship, I think that Judge McAfee, if he decides that is the case, would have good reason to think that there's some kind of presumption of a conflict because, of course, advocates for the state and officers of the court uh, should be candid with the court and, and should be honest. And, and so although we don't think that there's reason right now for Judge McAfee to find that Fonnie Willis's testimony in particular is not credible. You know, we we did mention that this private meeting with Terrence Bradley about what he learned through communications with Nathan Wade could very well factor into Judge McAfee's ultimate decision. So we thought that that meeting with Terrence Bradley was going to happen on Tuesday from what I understand, the dates kept getting pushed around and changed. Uh, and then today we had this uh, motion that came from Nathan Wade's personal attorney, uh, and they are now objecting to that in-camera meeting uh, with Terrence Bradley. They, they have argued that, you know, it, it, the judge already found that certain communications were privileged at the hearing. And so it it would be, you know, unlawful for Judge McAfee in camera to then require uh, Terrence Bradley to basically disclose those communications. Uh, so that is the latest in Fulton County. And of course, we can talk more in depth. I'm sure that Ben has opinions, but that is kind of where we are. We still don't have a date for closing summations. I think that that will, uh, you know, be something that will be set after this issue is dealt with in terms of the in-camera examination, because if Judge McAfee does find that some of the uh, communications that were that privilege was previously invoked on are actually not privileged, then it could be that he reopens the evidence and we're back in court for for more evidentiary hearing. Uh, but I, that's what's happening in Fulton County. There certainly has been a lot in this area over the past week, but I think that pretty much sums it up. Ben, anything high level that you want to add there before we dive into the details? I mean, that's a pretty good summary of it, and I don't have a lot to add. I do think the key variable right now, as Anna says, is what the judge makes of Terrence Bradley in this private session if it happens. And Nathan Wade actually makes a pretty decent argument that it shouldn't happen. Um, so uh, look, uh, Terrence Bradley is a very slippery character and um, it's not clear actually which direction his slipperiness 
uh, helps. But if the judge believes him and he says what people think he, what he appears to have said before the hearing, which is that the relationship began sometime in the 2019 period, that's a big problem for, uh, uh, for Willis and Wade. If on the other hand, the judge doesn't believe him or determines that the, whatever he says is privileged, or if he doesn't interview him at all, we could be basically done. And so I- Our long I, national nightmare is over. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, a lot depends on what the judge makes of him. If you had to make the determination now about, based on the record as it is known today, the defense hasn't actually come close to making the case they would need to make. Um, but could that change if, you know, Terrence Bradley is made to testify, that testimony is deemed admissible, and he contradicts Willis and Wade? Yeah, it could change. And so you you said, Ben, that you thought that Wade's argument here regarding privileges is not ridiculous. It seems credible to you. I mean, what do you make of the fact that he's sort of trying to block this? And Anna, I'm curious for your thoughts, too. I'm not an expert on privilege, on, on, on the attorney-client privilege, but it does strike me as a little bit odd for, you know, usually, and I, I honestly have not seen a situation like this before and don't know how, that it, how it's handled, but the privilege against testimony, uh, 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 the attorney-client privilege is a privilege against that information being revealed to any person. And so if you force him to testify by way of figuring out if the information is testif is, you know, is privileged, you've actually forced him to violate the privilege. And I do think Nathan Wade has a like non-trivial argument to that effect. Now, normally when you're dealing with documents, there's a solution to this problem, right? You gather a lot of documents, you want to make sure that none of them, that you know, the prosecutors don't look at privileged material. So you give it to what's called a taint team and they go through the documents, take out anything that's gonna be privileged, have an independent reviewer look at that and then give the other stuff to the prosecution. But you can't really do that with a witness. Now you could, right? You could have a different judge interview him. But once McAfee interviews Nathan Wade, what if he determines that the stuff is privileged and that it is? it shows that Nathan Wade and uh, Fonnie Willis are lying? He can't uh, use that information because it's privileged, right? But he also he can't forget it. And so I don't really know how it should work or what the law is when the trier of fact is the person who is reviewing stuff for privilege. That just seems like a weird situation that normally we try to avoid. And so I basically think, again, the question here is different for Fonnie Willis than it is for Nathan Wade. Nathan Wade is already a quite compromised figure and should be, uh, in my view, removed from the case. Uh, now, this issue, does, that doesn't entirely dispose of this issue because it would 
potentially bear on Fonnie Willis's disqualification as well. That said, I, I do think the whole thing gets a little bit easier if Wade were to remove himself from this. And I do think that as a preliminary step, that would be an, a good one. There's also the the question, right, that Wade is also going through divorce proceedings. And so if he waived the privilege um, to allow Bradley to testify, then that could potentially have implications for his his divorce proceedings, right? Yeah, and I don't think it's appropriate for people to call on him to waive attorney-client privilege. I mean, honestly, we all have reasons to talk to attorneys and calling on somebody. It's very easy to call on somebody else to give up their rights. And I I don't generally do that, um, and I'm not going to do it here. I do think you do not have a right to be the prosecutor in the most important case in Fulton County history. And if you are, as a prosecutor, embroiled in a situation in which your conduct is the issue and Nathan Wade's conduct for reasons that are not entirely not his fault, um, given that he lied in interrogatories in his divorce case, um, I don't really see why he needs to remain on that case. Now, Fonnie Willis, I'm much less convinced, did anything wrong here. It is perfectly possible, in my view, that she is telling the truth about everything. Um, And all she is guilty of is an inter-office romance, which, while uh, I don't approve necessarily of inter-office romances, they shouldn't derail Uh, It's not a big problem. It's not an ethical violation. It's not a problem of candor to the court. So I don't see any reason for Fonnie Willis to be disqualified, assuming she's telling the truth. Uh, Nathan Wade is in a bit of a different situation because his conduct in that divorce proceeding, which has become an issue in this case, is pretty difficult to defend. Anna, what's your take? Yeah, I I mean... I I think that I, again, Ben and I wrote a piece together on on this subject, and I I largely agree with Ben. Uh, I will add to your point, Quinta, about, you know, maybe maybe Nathan Wade is is invoking privilege and objecting so forcefully on privilege grounds for reasons that aren't related to necessarily this uh, proceeding, but he's also going through a contentious divorce. Uh, but beyond that, I, I think it's also important to keep in mind that at least in my view, and I'm, I'm no, uh, privilege expert whatsoever, but I think this raises an interesting question to the point of Terrence Bradley's credibility. If he is for some reason, either mistaken or lying about what Nathan Wade told him about the timing of his relationship with Fonnie Willis, then I think it still makes perfect sense for Nathan Wade to vigorously object on privileged grounds, even if the information is not true. Uh, does that make sense? I, I I hope it does. But so so because it's not necessarily the case, as we've said, that Terrence Bradley, whatever he does have to tell Judge McAfee is actually true. We've seen that he provided inconsistent uh, testimony again and again on the stand during this evidentiary hearing. 
So, of course, it is very bad optics here for Nathan Wade and for the state to continue to invoke privilege and and not want Terrence Bradley to sit for this in-camera examination. But it's just not totally clear to me if the optics uh, mean what they look like. Uh, There might be other reasons in the background that they are objecting that we just really can't draw a conclusion from from these objections. Uh, I will also add, because a few people have mentioned this or asked about it, about whether Judge McAfee, you know, let's say that he decides that he's he's not going to have some kind of in-camera examination with Terrence Bradley because of these objections that have been raised by Nathan Wade. Uh, could he still draw an adverse inference uh, from the fact that the state and Nathan Wade have objected on privileged grounds regarding the subject matter of the timing of the relationship? Uh, I looked into this a little bit, and my understanding is that there's no exact case law on point. Uh, There is Georgia case law that says in the context of civil cases, you could draw an adverse inference from, you know, invoking privilege in these kinds of circumstances. And then there's a case law in the criminal context that says you can't draw an adverse inference against a criminal defendant who invokes attorney client privilege as a way to, you know, block testimony. Uh, But here, of course, these are the people who are the subject of this hearing, Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis's office are not the criminal defendants. So there could be some argument from the defense that McAfee ought to draw some kind of adverse inference. I'm pretty skeptical that he would uh, draw that negative inference Uh, just, you know, as a policy matter. It doesn't really makes sense to me in this context. And it seems like it would really kind of weaken uh, the protections of attorney client privilege. But uh, it is just kind of, uh, uh, you know, issue to keep in mind as we get closer to these closing summations. I think that that is one uh, issue that could be raised. So we'll see. And so forgive my ignorance here, but if if Wade is either removed or decides to take one for the team and step back as a special prosecutor. What happens at that point? Does Willis's office, if she's still in the case, need to appoint another special prosecutor or can her office take on that portion of the case? No, her office can just take, I mean, she's got plenty of people and this is why, I mean, I think that, you know, the simplest solution to all this would just be for Nathan Wade to offer his resignation and for Fonnie Willis to accept. And I don't know that that necessarily would mean the motion to disqualify goes away, uh, but I think it does help mitigate some of the, um, you know, issues that Judge McAfee might be thinking about um, in terms of, you know, the appearance of a conflict and that kind of thing. Uh, But, uh, you know, she has people who have worked this case from the beginning who are salaried employees who are part of her office who could step up and and take Nathan Wade's position or role. There's, you know, no reason why she couldn't also appoint a new special prosecutor if she wanted to. But it's just not necessary uh, to have a special prosecutor, especially when she's got a, a team of people who have been on this case. So I, I want to uh, go to the the next issue here, which is a scandal involving Boy Wonder, Judge McAfee. But before, before we get to that, is there anything else about the divorce court proceedings that we've all suddenly been thrust into that any of you would like to touch on? 
I think one thing that I have been thinking about that I don't think anyone's really discussed or brought up because everyone thinks that this is all going to be resolved when Judge McAfee makes this decision on this motion after, you know, the in-camera examination and after the closing summations. But I think something for folks to keep in mind is that this issue could very well be raised again down the road by other defendants. There are at least two defendants, uh, Travion Kuti and uh, Sean Still, who have extended deadlines for uh, uh, different reasons. Uh, Sean Still, because he is a sitting Georgia state senator and his case is basically suspended while he's in General Assembly. Uh, that's under you know Georgia statute, basically. His case is paused until April. Um, And then Trevion Cootie, uh, you know, she had some issues with her counsel. And so she's she, as far as I'm aware, still does not have uh, new counsel and her other counsel withdrew. So uh, and, you know, Trevion Cootie was at the evidentiary hearing both days last week watching the proceedings. So we very well could see that down the road there's this issue is raised again. So, you know, even though if Judge McAfee decides to say that Fonnie Willis isn't disqualified, I think that just people should be aware that this issue could be raised again. And that might even be something Judge McAfee's keeping in mind as he's, uh, you know, deciding this is if he keeps Fonnie Willis on the case and Nathan Wade on the case, then it's going to be something he's going to have a headache uh, with, you know, again, in a few months time. So just something to to note there, because I don't think that that's really been discussed very much. Yeah, I would just add to that, that if you're Fonnie Willis, um, the thing that you really have to worry about is winning this motion this time if there is extant information, other shoes that are going to drop. The worst possible outcome for her is if she is hiding something about this that is, that's going to come out three months from now or two months from now. Right. And so you win this motion this time and then they come forward with another renewal of the motion with some new evidence, uh, um, whether it's, you know, a new witness or forensic material of some sort. Um, And then they renew the motion. And then you end up in this drip, drip, drip that both involves the purported conflict of interest, but also involves the uh, suggestion that you've been untruthful in your now sworn testimony. And so I I think, you know, the right outcome here is the one that finally disposes of the issue in a way that's going to have legs. All right. Let's let's talk about uh, Boy Wonder McAfee. There's a scandal. His integrity has been impugned. This is shocking news. It's very upsetting. It's very wrong for people to be attacking Boy Wonder <laughs> or his bar mitzvah. Anna, break it, break it down for us. What's happening? Uh, 
Um, well, yeah, everyone knows the one rule at Lawfare is you don't come for Boy Wonder Judge McAfee, um, unless he does something wrong. But so far, he has proved to be quite a good uh, and reliable judge. Um, so here's what uh, happened this week. Of course, there's already this the you know discussion around Fonnie Willis and a potential conflict of interest. Uh, the Daily Caller, which is a right wing website. Uh, published a story, I believe it was yesterday, in which they, you know, discovered that Judge McAfee in 2020, when he was not a sitting judge, he in fact was working for the Trump administration's Department of Justice at the time as an assistant United States attorney. He gave a very small donation of $150 to Fonnie Willis's campaign for district attorney. Like pretty much any uh, attorney in in Atlanta at that point, because she was running against Paul Hauer, who was a uh, beleaguered district attorney, uh, her predecessor, and and who no one really wanted in office at all. But uh, so this campaign donation was picked up by the Daily Caller and it has in conservative and and right wing, you know, social media and uh, circles has kind of become this new rallying cry in which people say that it raises a conflict of interest for Judge McAfee and that he should recuse on this basis. Never mind that if that was a basis for recusal, then Judge McAfee could not be a judge in Fulton County because it would require him to recuse from every single case in Fulton County because that is where Fonnie Willis is the district attorney. But uh, there's also Georgia case law that says that, you know, small campaign contributions like that are not sufficient basis for disqualifying or, you know, recusing a judge on conflict of interest grounds. It's really just a huge nothing burger, uh, but it has become, you know, a, a new talking point and somewhat inexplicably because, you know, Judge McAfee has run a really fair process I had a tweet thread um, a few hours ago in which I was talking about going to an event uh, where John Eastman was set to give a speech. And I spoke to John Eastman at that event, and he was very complimentary of Judge McAfee, talking about how he uh, ran, uh, you know, had been very judicious in his opinions and all of that and faithfully applied the law, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, from talking to other defense attorneys, I think that they've all felt, even if they disagree on points of law with Judge McAfee, they have appreciated that he has given all the defendants the right to be heard. Um, I've heard no questions about his impartiality. So it's all just really a non-issue. Ben, do you want to defend his honor? Yeah, I will just add to that. I mean, I I, I have no I mean, jokes aside, I have no dog in this fight except that um, I've watched all these hearings since the beginning of this case, and this is a really, really fine judge. And uh, it's not just Eastman that has kind of vouched for his fairness to these defendants. Ken Cheesebro publicly thanked him at his plea hearing for his, uh, um, and the former president filed a brief at the time of his motion, at the time of his, the deadline for his removal motion saying, 
that after considering it, they have uh, decided to put their faith in the state court for for purposes of and not seek removal to federal court. So you have three, um, at least, defendants saying that this guy has been fair to us. You know, the right-wing media should be pretty careful about uh, what it asks for when it, you know, goes after him. Uh, it is not obvious that they're gonna get a, a fairer hearing from anybody they might replace him with. Um, and by the way, in case that sounds like backhanded criticism, uh, you know, hey, even Trump thinks he's fair. This is not Eileen Cannon. You know, this is not somebody who is in the tank for the defense. In fact, he's been moving this along at a fairly expeditious rate, which is remarkable when you consider that unlike Eileen Cannon, he's got 19 defendants, right? And Trump is only one of them. He's uh, really moved this along. He's tolerated bullshit from nobody. He's been polite to everybody. Um, I mean, I've been joking about his looking like a 14-year-old, but he's, he's, he's a remarkably talented and able district judge. And he's got, as I've said before, the hardest job of any of the judges sitting on any of these cases because of the number of defendants in, in the case. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about uh, Judge Eileen Cannon. Um, Roger, what's been happening down in West, excuse me, I was about to say West Palm Beach, but that's not right at all, Fort Pierce. Well, uh, actually, technically, the the case, all the rulings say West Palm Beach at the top, but you're right, she holds, uh, her chambers are in uh, Fort Pierce. Um, A lot has been happening, and uh, a lot's about to happen. Um, And in fact, uh, later today, Trump is going to file at least 10 motions, mainly motions to dismiss. He'll probably be asking for hearings in some of them. Uh, He's given a a, a sort of a peek, sneak peek of uh, the topics there. uh, One has to do with the appointment of Jack Smith. One has to do with presidential immunity, which we should come back to. Uh, the Presidential Records Act, selective and vindictive prosecution, uh, unconstitutional vagueness of 18 U.S.C. 793E, that's the 
a willful retention of uh, national defense information uh, law, due process violations, prosecutorial misconduct, impermissible pre-indictment delay, which is also an interesting topic, um, given that, uh, you know, Trump filed a civil suit and the, this sitting judge gave that civil suit credence, which counts for some of the pre-indictment delay, and uh, the illegal raid on Mar-a-Lago, that's obviously their word, the illegal raid, uh, improper violations of Trump's attorney-client privilege. So that would be a challenge, challenging the rulings made in the, the District of Columbia about uh, attorney-client privilege, the forcing of Evan Corcoran to testify against Trump on certain matters. So that's a lot. We won't be seeing all of those. We'll probably be seeing some of those motions tonight. We won't be seeing all of them because of sort of an uh, unusual ruling that Judge Cannon made on February 6th. Um, she decided to depart from the normal uh, local rules um, in the Southern District of Florida. Until now, what, what would happen is, is Trump would file some of those Trump wants to cite from documents that are currently under a protective order. And uh, so normally you would file the motion redacted and then there would be litigation about whether you can unseal those. Uh, the judge on February 6th apparently felt, uh, she seemed to feel that uh, the government was using this too often. And so she said, we're not, not gonna do it that way anymore. You can't file anything under seal until you first file a motion in public explaining to me why it needs to be under seal and with uh, providing a particularized basis, which is, you know, tricky to do without showing her the document sometimes. So anyway, that's how we're doing it this time. And so uh, some of these Trump motions we may not see until uh, later when the government, after a, after a whole motions practice. So that's happening. What's also happening is we're getting very close to a ruling on some of these sensitive issues relating to the Classified Information Procedures Act. And uh, in, in fact, there's gonna be an ex-party telephone conference tomorrow between the judge and the defense team. That's not surprising, uh, that's not improper, uh, but it does suggest she might be close to deciding if she's going to uh, reveal the government's ex-party motion there, which includes a lot of very sensitive information to Trump's cleared counsel, which is not usually done. It's usually a completely ex-party process. That will be a, a controversial matter. She'll also decide whether to turn over some of those 32 uh, documents involved in the uh, first 32 counts uh, the, the withholding, uh, the willful retention of uh, classified information uh, counts. If she's going to give that, those documents, let let the, the Nauta and De Oliveira see those documents. Those are the two defendants who aren't charged with those counts. So a lot of important decisions there she's about to rule. I think the most important thing coming down the pike, though, is uh, a motion for reconsideration that uh, the the uh, government filed. And that has to do with a different aspect of that February 6th 
order that Judge Cannon made, because in that order, she uh, tentatively ordered or she ordered, but it hasn't happened yet, uh, the government to unseal certain documents that are currently under a protective order. And um, it would include the identities of more than 20 FBI agents who participated in the Mar-a-Lago raid, which as you've not raid at the Mar-a-Lago search, which he calls an illegal raid. He said it was like a Gestapo raid. And also it would reveal a, a handful of the identities of a handful of witnesses and also their testimony, um, their uh, their statements to FBI agents who've interviewed them and some of their grand jury testimony. This is very controversial. Um, it's a very unusual ruling. And now it may be that she happens to be and an, you know, one of the great uh, First Amendment champions on the federal bench concerning openness of uh, federal court records. Because uh, and and this is not an isolated incident. She's made rulings like this earlier. It's always difficult because they're always rulings against the government. So you don't know exactly. Is this just how she feels about openness of, of court matters or does this have something to do with uh, hostility to the government here? But um, this is a big uh, the government says that this would put all of these people in significant uh risk of uh, harassment and intimidation and uh, uh, threats. Um, ordinarily, this is all called what's called Jenks material. And ordinarily, it doesn't come up because the de defense doesn't even doesn't have it at this stage. And uh, it's uh, the government. It's not discoverable. The, the government doesn't have to turn it over until the witness has testified in the case in chief. Um, government's case in chief. And then you turn over the statements, the prior statements that the person has made. And that's done for a lot of reasons. It's done partly uh, be, to avoid uh, harassment and intimidation of witnesses. It's done so that other witnesses can't craft their testimony to match that testimony. It's so it doesn't taint the testimony of other witnesses. Uh, it also can reveal allegations of wrongdoing that have nothing to do with the case, even allegations that are currently under investigation, which uh, the government says is the case here uh, in at least one instance. So, you know, and it's right in the statute that it, there was this ruling in 1957 that Jenks versus the United States that that where uh, Justice Brennan decided we we're going to do it this way. Uh, this, this stuff used to be completely private. It made it more this rule evolved and then it was codified at 18 USC 3500. And it says, you know, you can't get this material by subpoena. You can't get it. You're not entitled to inspect it until after. Uh, and what happened here is the judge turned, uh, the uh, government turned over a lot of it under protective order early on to show its good faith, to show, you know, we want to streamline this case. We're giving a lot of discovery early. And, and they asked for an incredibly early uh, trial date in December originally. And and now uh, the judge is saying, well, now they're presumptive, you know, they're judicial doc documents that are presumptively public. And you need to there's a heavy burden that you need to make and very particularized way to keep this under under wraps. And uh, so far, uh, the, the fact that it's 
you know, Jenks material is not a sufficient basis in her mind. So this is a big, I think this is a big decision. If she doesn't back down from this, I think this is actually more sensitive than some of those SEPA questions. Although, you know, maybe I'm not in a position to know that since I haven't seen the documents. So I've seen some discussion that, you know, this is the thing uh, that's going to, you know, finally get the 11th Circuit to boot Cannon from the case. Is that a pipe dream? Well, I think we're a long way from that. I mean, first of all, she might back down. And second, you know, ordinarily, if you're trying to get somebody off the case, you have to make a motion, you present it to the judge first. You don't just take it up to the for the first time to the appellate court everything we're doing now is in the shadow of judge cannon's earlier ruling in the uh, during the invest in the civil case that trump brought to appoint a special master to basically i don't want to use the word obstruct but slow down the investigation uh which she granted and, you know, which was unanimously overturned, which was such a, wow, what, what is going on? And it does raise the question of that if there were another case, you know, this would have to be raised by a mandamus, by the way, which is a, an emergency petition. It's an extraordinary petition. It's a high stand. You know, it's, it, there's no interlocutory appeal on this. But, you know, if the 11th Circuit thought itself something's wrong here. Uh, Perhaps they could on their own in some sort of polite fashion say, you know, maybe there's a lack of experience, maybe another judge ought to take. But it's still pretty, it's very far away. Yeah. And I I will just add on that point, Roger, you're Roger's right that usually if you're asking a judge to recuse, you usually ask the trial court first and then it goes up and you'd have to see you'd have to seek a writ of mandamus to basically force them to uh recuse but in the 11th circuit there is a uh i don't know if it's unique but i it exists in the 11th circuit at least in which there's precedent under which on appeal of an issue uh the appellant can ask for reassignment when if the case is remanded you know back to the trial court and reversed so they would first have to get the case an appeal an appealable issue that then goes to the 11th circuit then they'd also have to you know the, the 11th circuit would have to reverse and when they send it back reassign the case the cases i've seen on on this point have been you know really extreme kind of issues. Uh, So, for example, where a judge uh, is overturned on a sentencing issue, but then they go ahead and sentence a person to whatever it is that they want that's kind of essentially um, in violation of the 11th Circuit's previous uh, reversal. So and then it goes back up and and then the 11th Circuit, you know, reassigns on remand. Um, but uh, I just like Roger said, I'm in agreement that we're just not there yet. And I think that a lot of the commentary that is on this point is assuming that the 11th Circuit would take into account the fact that they have reversed Judge Cannon in the special master litigation which is technically a different 
uh, case, even though it involves the same parties. But there is 11th Circuit decisions that have tried to disqualify Judge Cannon in cases involving Trump. Actually, it was involves the guy Castro, who who does a lot of the pro se Section 3 litigation. Um, He tried to get Judge Cannon thrown off of a case uh, went up to the 11th Circuit for um, a writ of mandamus, and they said basically, you know, no, there's no reason for her to disqualify. And he had made all the arguments about her deci- decisions and the special master litigation, and all that. So I'm just, you know, I'm with Roger that I just don't think that we're at the point yet where the the special counsel would see the propriety of asking for reassignment, but it really just depends on what some of her upcoming decisions are. And maybe if she gets a few appealable issues that they feel pretty comfortable that are pretty confident that the 11th Circuit would reverse, then then maybe we'll see them ask for reassignment. Yeah, just to pile on here, um, I, I think it's complicated by the fact that with the exception of this issue that's under request for uh, for reconsideration, she hasn't really done anything yet. You know, she's issued some bizarre scheduling orders that everybody reasonably reads into uh, a certain, uh, she's asked for dissertations to be written about uh, SIPA and she's, She's shown a kind of ornery, like uh, when the government asks her to clarify something, she says no. But she hasn't issued, correct me if I'm wrong, Roger, with the exception of this this matter, this Jenks material matter that you were talking about, she, she hasn't really done very much, which is actually part of the problem because that's one of the reasons the case isn't moving along. Um, but you can't, take her up for being slow. And so I think the government is waiting for her to do something that is really outrageous and then not reconsider it when asked. I think you're right. There hasn't been, you know, this is this is the first palpable thing. And if she sticks to her guns, I think this is the palpable thing. I think you need to go up on this. And I think the places where I've seen reassignments by appellate courts, I don't think it even always requires, I mean, I don't know if it's always even been accompanied by a request. They're basically sort of what what Anna was describing, that they're recalcitrance. It's where the judge... They've ruled once, they sent it back, and they feel like the judge is doing an end run around their ruling. So it's really recalcitrance and, okay, another judge gets to try this. Sometimes it's more polite. It's usually more polite than that. They don't admit anyone's bias. I don't know. This is getting close uh, because there's a disregard for fundamentals here If, if this if she doesn't back down. There are ways that she could back down. And in fact, I should say, you know, there are things the special counsel could have done better. You know, the press coalition submitted, you know, a motion asking to make all of this public. And 
Trump himself was not really making much of he he did not really oppose the government's proposed redactions, which were relatively minor. I don't think the government appreciated that somebody who like Judge Cannon had been a prosecutor for what is it, nine years? I can't remember uh, something. But, you know, she was a prosecutor then uh, in the appellate division of the U.S. Attorney's Office. They argued that the press coalition should not intervene. It hadn't shown the factors necessary to intervene. And if the judge wanted to treat it like an amicus brief, they took no position, but it didn't engage with their arguments. So I think the special counsel was a little lax here. And I, I there is an opportunity for the judge to back down. But the other thing, though, I do notice and uh, you can't really put it in a motion to recuse, but it'll be interesting with these motions to dismiss because now she'll have no choice. We have not had, I don't think to this point, correct me if you can think of one, Anna, but although she has ruled against Trump, she has never ruled against him in a written memo explaining why she was ruling against him. She has ruled against him on little tiny stuff in paperless memos saying denied without prejudice, denied with clarification. You can't have this, but you can have this instead. And then on one occasion early on, remember when Trump was asking for uh, his own private skiff for uh, uh, at Mar-a-Lago, she ruled against him and it was there was nothing initially. It wasn't in you didn't know. You sort of had to glean it. The, 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 after two months of litigation, she issues the, the SEPA protective order that the government sought two months earlier. And that was all. There was no explanation of why is she ruling against Trump. And then a couple of weeks later, in an unrelated ruling on something else, in a footnote, there's an oblique reference that you can gather, oh, she ruled against him on the skiff. It's it's very odd. And now she's got, I just listed all these motions. There's no getting around it. One of them is presidential immunity. She's got to rule against him on the record. And I don't know if she can do it. And so this will be an important thing to see. And the presidential immunity thing, she's not only got to rule against him, but she's really got to say, this is frivolous. Because otherwise, there's a danger of the automatic stay coming into effect. So uh, we're about to see whether she can rule against him on the record in a normal way. Okay. It looks like we have Mike McNeely there. So Mike, if you want to go ahead and unmute yourself and ask your question. I was thinking about the relationship between the two Trump cases before the Supreme Court, if there are only two. And what I was wondering is whether... I mean, I'm, my premise for all this is that Justice Roberts, at least, and others want a unanimous ruling in the Section 3 case, or at least a ruling that's unopposed in any way by, by arguments and to the contrary. And I'm wondering whether one or more justices, probably including Sotomayor, could threaten a dissent or concurrence in that case as a bargaining chip on the issue of stay of the uh, immunity case. I would just say that normally justices 
at least in the correspondence, the formal correspondence of the court, uh, don't do things like that. If there's an implicit horse trading, it is left implicit. And I don't doubt that people kind of negotiate for votes, but uh, it's not like there's a, I'll give you mine in this one if you give me yours in the next one. I don't think those conversations really happen. It, to the extent those are factors that people consider, it's a, a lot of it is unspoken, I think. At least unwritten. I, I mean, I feel as if I've read accounts of Justice Brennan, Brennan working the hustings within the Supreme Court to get things done. But uh, I understand that, yeah, it would never be done in a public way. Yeah, I'll just add that I will say um, Joan Biskupic, who's the Supreme Court correspondent for for CNN, uh, she had a book that came out, I think, about a year ago called Nine Black Robes about the current Supreme Court over the last few years. And there, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I can't specifically recall the cases, but there, she did have some reporting in there about sort of horse trading. And it was kind of controversial, um, precisely because the the justices aren't supposed to engage in in that kind of explicit horse trading, and also because uh, if they do, you would not expect to ever learn about it. All right, uh, Michael Broadhead, uh, over to you. I'd I'd like to hear people's thoughts on the two appeals bonds that Trump is looking at, and. What do we know about his ability to pay? And if he if he chooses not to and then isn't appealing, what do we know about his ability to pay the judgments or flipping that around the uh, the plaintiff's ability to collect? Yeah, Roger, do you have thoughts? Yeah, it's a good question, and I I really don't have the uh, the right answers. I'm uh, I don't don't have the answer. My understanding is the judgment was signed today. I. I at least the docket reflects that it was signed. I don't know if it's been entered. Uh, so he would have 30 days to 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 put up this money. And uh, he was there was a flurry of activity by him today and yesterday trying to get another 30 days to stay enforcement for various reasons. So, uh, but no, I, I really don't. Uh, this is sort of at the periphery of our bailiwick this uh, civil case, uh, although it's terribly important and uh, you're right, uh, but I just don't uh, have good information about his ability to, that hasn't been in the papers already about, uh, you know, his ability to make this bond together with the uh, E.J. Carroll uh, bond. Yes, actually. So we we have a question um, from Josh Knight to that effect, which is asking, um, has Trump been um, asking for delay or appealing the 83 million Carroll judgment. So it sounds like the answer is is yes. I know he's indicated that he plans to appeal. He's actually filed. I was actually talking about the uh, civil, the, the civil judgment, the uh, people versus Trump civil judgment, uh, the 355 million plus 9%. Uh, in fact, uh, it, it is 9% prejudgment interest at, at going back various to various states. That's the one that he has 30 days from now. Uh, I don't know the status of the uh, of the Carroll cases. I believe he's he's certainly indicated that he's he plans to appeal. I don't know if he's actually filed the the paperwork yet. All right. Uh, next question uh, from Michael Burns, who asks: 
if and when the mandate returns to Judge Chutkin, does Trump have any more effective delaying tactics left? Ben, any thoughts here? Is this his last shot, the immunity uh, issue? Well, it is certainly not the last shot he will take. And I uh, don't doubt that he will throw a lot of spaghetti at the wall to try to get this uh, reversed. I don't know, or to, to try to delay further, I don't know what the deadline is for motions in that case. Uh, it may have already passed. He may have already submitted uh, his dispositive motions, which is where this comes from. Uh, this was the big one. We anticipated based on statements that Lauro, his lawyer, was making that this motion was coming. Uh, we anticipated that he would uh, get a delay based on this motion. Uh, uh, that was largely insight from uh, the estimable Ruth Marcus. Um, but um, uh, it's uh, like this was the big, the, I mean, the thing that may gives this motion legs is that it's an assertion of immunity. And because it's an assertion of immunity, which is a right not merely to have the case dismissed, but to not be tried at all, right? And so because it's a right, if it's real, which of course it isn't, uh, it's a right, because it's a right not to be tried at all, it has to be disposed of before trial. I don't think there's another good argument for him. This was kind of at the margins of a good argument, good enough to get a delay I have spent a lot of time trying to think of another argument that would get a delay, and I don't think there is a good one. But what there is, is lots of things you can throw at the wall, get Judge Chuck in to rule against you on, and then go up on mandamus to the DC Circuit and try to get engage them and try to eat up some time by trying to engage them. That's a dangerous game because the DC circuit already thinks he's playing games with time. And, um, you know, you, you risk uh, a lot when you antagonize uh, your appeals court, particularly if you're anticipating an eventual appeal of the case. And so I, I do think a May, you know, trial date is plausible if the mandate gets returned, um, but I'm very confident he will try other things to get it delayed. All right. Uh, next question is from Tyler Thompson, who asks, uh, Trump's team has floated making an immunity claim in the Florida case. We touched on that earlier. Um, assuming the Supreme Court lets the D.C. Circuit opinion stand, is it possible that Trump's team is attempting to create some sort of circuit split to entice the Supreme Court to consider the issue and create further delays? Yeah, so I'll, I can take a crack at this one. Um, so first of all, the presidential immunity argument is, uh, to the extent that presidential immunity exists at all, it is current president immunity, not former president immunity for actions taken after you left office, right? And the almost the entirety of the crimes, in fact, the entirety of the crimes alleged in the, uh, the Mar-a-Lago case involve post-presidential conduct, although they involve actions that began when he was president. But the criminal acts the willful retention of classified information and the obstruction are all post-presidential. 
And so I don't think there is a plausible argument uh, that any of that, even if you accept that presidential conduct is immune, which of course is what the DC circuit is, has rejected, uh, I don't think that argument works in the context of the Mar-a-Lago case. Although, you know, creative lawyer is going to creative lawyer. I don't think that will work on the facts of the indictment as alleged. Well, what do you think, Roger? Yeah, I don't see that one at all. But the, uh, I think you do need to have a judge that will cut through these things. And, uh, you know, with Chutkin in the DC case, you know, it's a warm knife through butter. It's Zoom. It's, you know, she knows who this guy is and what these are. With the even with the immunity case, I think she she needs to say not just that this is uh, meritless, but that it's um, frivolous. At least that's sort of the law in the double jeopardy realm. That if the district judge says this is a frivolous claim, the automatic stay doesn't doesn't take effect. Next question is from anonymous attendee um, who asks, does Canon have a boss who, if anyone oversees her day-to-day work, will it really take DOJ going to the 11th circuit for any discipline or oversight? Um, so before I kick this to the panelists, I just want to recommend uh, that everyone look on YouTube and find the, the excellent song by the Bar and Grill Singers um, that's called Appointed Forever. Uh, and includes the line, I'm a federal judge and I'm smarter than you. Uh, So Ben, take it away. Yeah, the simple answer to this question is no, Eileen Cannon doesn't have a boss. She was appointed by the president. A revelation told him she was heaven sent. The Senate in its wisdom granted its consent, appointed forever. And she is... um, answerable only to the 11th Circuit and then the Supreme Court. And uh, that takes forever. Yeah, it's the song. It's very apropos to our current situation in many different ways. <laughs> um, all right, we're, we're going to close with one more whimsical question. Um, this is also from Tyler Thompson, who asks, Ben, are there any plans to bring back baby canon as we may finally be approaching criminal accountability? We miss the booms. Baby Cannon is uh, wrote me the other day an email from the beach in uh, Cancun, where she has been hanging out with the world's largest margarita uh, for the last few years and uh, says she has no plans to come back, but will, of course, uh, be called back to active duty when democracy needs her most. Um, And last but not least, we have a a very nice comment, not a question from Kevin Bonham, who says, I don't have a question. I just want to say it's my first time joining live and I want to encourage everyone to become material supporters so you can join too. It's great, exclamation mark. It is. Please do do that. Um, I I cannot riff on this as as well as Ben can, uh, but if you become a material supporter, you can join us here in the Zoom live. You can ask us questions. You can... I don't know, put in requests for Ben to sing, I guess. (laughs) Um, Ben, what other advantages are there? Well, there's the ad-free podcasts. Um, There are, uh, sometimes we even, uh, every month we have a mini pod, which is uh, recorded at the request of material supporters. Sometimes uh, our material supporters 
They get to ask questions and we do a whole podcast about the questions. And of course, there is knowing that you are supporting this kind of coverage, which let's face it, nobody else brings you except Lawfare. You know, we couldn't do it without you guys. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next week. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also be able to pose questions to our panel and become part of the conversation by joining our Zoom webinar, available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha, and your audio engineer this episode was Anna Hickey of Lawfare. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.